Previously on Urban Puritano, Episode 13, we enlisted the help of Gordon H. Clark for a Reformation celebration of sorts. But the celebration can't stop and won't stop. With Clark's help, we scratched the surface on the Apostle Paul's argument in the Epistle of Romans, chapters 1 through 3. On today's episode, we continue our consideration of Romans 4 through 16 with the help of Gordon H. Clark's essay on Romans from the Biblical Expositor of 1960. Gird your loins and stay tuned for The Gospel According to Gordon H. Clark, Part 2. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. You're here today for more Gordon H. Clark, and I'm here for you, the listener. Before we continue tracing the Apostle Paul's argument as found in Romans, I'd like to express my profound thanks and appreciation to all the listeners the world over. It was once said that the sun never sets on the Union Jack. And I feel very similar because Bangladesh, the Philippines, Russia, Chile, Poland, the United Kingdom, Denmark, Colombia, Brazil, Finland, Israel, Mexico, France, India, Canada, Honduras, Italy, Spain, Ireland, Uganda, Germany, Kenya, Puerto Rico, the Netherlands, Argentina, and my beloved United States of America. In 30 states. What? Only 30 states? We got to do better this coming year. Thank you, brothers and sisters. I'm humbled and highly motivated to serve you and promote the gospel. That is my obligation according to the love of Christ who died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. My yoke, therefore, is velvet because of our Lord and Savior, Christ the King, Cristo el Redentor. Now let's continue. The Gospel According to Gordon H. Clark, Part 2. We continue following Clark's outline, Roman numeral 4, Abraham, 
A Confirmation of Justification, Chapter 4, Verses 1-25 through 25. That justification by faith is the only method of salvation, and has been the only method since the fall of Adam, is seen in the example of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, for he had no works of which to boast. Scripture is clear on this point. Genesis 15, verse 6. The wording here, if detached from the main material of Romans 3, 25, and 26, might give the impression that faith itself is the basis of justification. But Paul allows himself some abbreviation of language in view of the fact that he had spoken so explicitly in the verses above. He had already spoken of faith in Christ and of being justified by faith in his blood. When God acquits a sinner, he does so on the ground of a righteousness that he gives to the sinner. The righteousness comes to the sinner by faith. But from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul has indicated that it is the righteousness and not the faith which God regards when he says, not guilty. One should never forget that it is the object of the faith and not the faith itself that produces the result. The imputation of righteousness, and this is grace, shows that redemption is not something that God owes to us for our works. David made that clear in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. God counts us as righteous, not because of what we have done, but because he puts Christ's righteousness to our account. The principle of grace excludes even circumcision and baptism and the Lord's Supper as well, as the basis of acquittal. Abraham was justified first and circumcised afterwards. Hence, Abraham could be the father of believing Gentiles as well as that of believing Jews. Similarly, the nature both of the promises of the law supports justification by faith. God's promises are ours for merely believing them. Their fulfillment does not depend on our keeping the law. The law specifies penalties for disobedience. And if we depended on the law for God's blessings, faith would be useless. And the promises would be useless too. Not only that, but since we are never sure that we shall obey the law, assurance of salvation must depend on faith promise, and grace. Only in this way can we be sure. Abraham is an excellent illustration, for the promise God gave him was hard to believe, yet he did not stagger at it. Now, the book of Genesis is not so much ancient history. It explains the only plan of redemption that God has ever offered to humankind. Imputation applies to us today as much as it did to Abraham, provided, of course, that we believe on Christ, who was crucified for our sins and was raised again for our justification. Roman numeral 5. Results of Justification. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. 
Although the results of justification continue through chapters 6, 7, and 8, these three form a special section, so that chapter 5 must be treated as a single unit. The first mentioned result of justification is peace with God. Previously, we had been enemies of God, but through Jesus Christ, we receive peace, grace, and hope. Even our tribulations are now a blessing because they produce patience, experience, and a hope that shall not be disappointed. All this depends on the work of Christ, who died for us even while we were yet sinners and enemies. Now that we have been reconciled to God by the death of His Son and are no longer enemies, it is all the more certain that He will save us from the wrath to come. Christ's death is the effective factor. And before further results of justification are given in the next three chapters, it is necessary to explain more in detail just how Christ's death accomplishes its purpose. Romans 5, 12-21 are about the most difficult verses in the epistle. To understand them, it is best to fix in mind first how they are introduced. The design of the paragraph is to explain justification. From chapter 3:21 on, the merit of Christ's sacrifice has been prominent, and the immediately preceding verses stress that merit. The work of Christ is now to be explained by a comparison with the work of Adam. Any interpretation that destroys the comparison must be incorrect. Of course, the work of Adam and the work of Christ are antithetical in some important particulars. These differences are carefully mentioned and set aside in chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. But there is also a most important point of similarity. Correct interpretation must discover what it is. The difficulty of the passage is aggravated by its complicated grammatical structure. Verse 12 begins the comparison between Adam and Christ, but it breaks off halfway through. The comparison is resumed in verses 18 and 19. Verses 13 and 14 are a sort of parenthetical remark attached to the end of verse 12, and verses 15, 16, and 17 form another parenthesis attached to the end of verse 14. The main thought, therefore, is found in verses 12, 18, and 19. The analogy of these verses is this. Christ is the cause of our righteousness and justification in the same way that Adam is the cause of our sin and condemnation. How then did Adam cause our sin? Did Adam bring sin and death upon all men by reason of the fact that all men followed his example and themselves committed voluntary transgressions? This interpretation must be rejected for four reasons. First, the phrase all sinned uses a tense which in Greek refers to a single act in past time and not to many acts in the present. Second, the purpose of these verses, and this is certainly made especially clear in verses 16 and 17, is to show that Adam's one sin, not our many sins, is the cause of death. Third, the idea of imitating Adam's example is explicitly ruled out in verse 14. And fourth, if we die because we imitate Adam's example, then 
To maintain the comparison between Adam and Christ, justification would have to be the result of imitating Christ. Perhaps then, when it says all sinned, it means all became corrupt. That is, Adam's sin caused him to deteriorate physically and spiritually, and since we naturally inherit his depraved nature, we sin and die. This interpretation also must be rejected. It is true, of course, that we inherit a depraved nature from Adam, but such is not the sense of this passage. First, all became corrupt is an impossible translation. The text says, all sinned. Second, it ruins the comparison between Adam and Christ. If we become sinners and die because of our moral change for the worse, it would follow that we are justified because of a moral change for the better. Such an idea is essentially a justification by works, or at best, it is the Roman Catholic position of justification by faith plus works. Luther and Calvin, however, made it forever clear that justification is by faith alone, without works, lest Abraham should boast. Third, verses 15 through 19 emphasize the one sin of Adam as the ground of our condemnation. Neither our depravity nor our sinfulness is said to be this ground. None of this denies that we are in fact depraved, nor that we commit sins, nor indeed, as we shall see in the following three chapters, that justification is followed by a moral change and good works. It does deny that any of these things is the basis on which God acquits the sinner. The only interpretation that does justice to the text is that Adam was our substitute or representative. He acted in our stead. Therefore, when he sinned and died, we all sinned and we all died. His representative act, his one sin, not his many sins that he committed later in life, is the ground upon which God condemned us. His one act made us all guilty. This view of how Adam's sin is the cause of our guilt preserves the comparison between Adam and Christ. For the whole scriptural description of our relation to Christ is permeated with the concept of representation. We die with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We rose with Him, and we sit with Him in heavenly places. These phrases cannot be true of us personally, for we had not been born when Christ was crucified. These expressions are true representatively. When Christ died, he paid the penalty of sin in our stead. He took our place. He was our substitute or representative. Therefore, as the guilt of the one man, Adam, was imputed to us for condemnation, so the righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ, was imputed to us for our justification. It is sometimes claimed that this interpretation is the result of theological prejudice. Quite the contrary. The natural mind, which wants to boast, would never have invented this doctrine. The men of the Reformation maintained it because the Bible itself forced it on them. To the self-righteous, 
justification by means of faith on the ground of Christ's imputed righteousness is the scandal of the cross. Roman numeral 6. Reply to first objection. Justification promotes sin. Chapter 6, verses 1 through chapter 8, verse 39. Letter A. Justification produces sanctification. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. The magnitude of God's grace is seen more clearly when contrasted with the extent of sin. Therefore, Paul had just said, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. From this just sentiment, however, the sinful mind has a natural tendency to draw fallacious inferences. Hence, Paul introduces an objection to his doctrine by the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Recall chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 that the unbelieving Jews had inconsistently and slanderously accused Paul of teaching, let us do evil that good may come. It is necessary, therefore, to defend justification against the charge that it encourages sin. This defense is the doctrine of sanctification. Justification and sanctification are sometimes misunderstood by being too sharply separated and contrasted. The adversative but is put between them. We are justified by faith, but, for some mysterious reason, we must now do good works. Other Christians avoid the sharp antithesis, but leave the two as somewhat unrelated facts. Instead of using the but, they use and. We are justified by faith and, to change the subject, we are sanctified by works. Paul, however, connects them closely. Not but, not and, but therefore. We are justified by faith, therefore, we should not sin. Sanctification is the purpose of justification. And so surely does justification produce its result that Paul is able to say, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Chapter 6, verse 14. To borrow other scriptural expressions, one might say, Justification is the straight gate, and sanctification is the narrow way that leads to glory. In answer to the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The main point of the first 14 verses is briefly this. No one who comes to Christ for salvation, from both the guilt and power of sin, can possibly want to continue sinning. Christ's work on the cross was an expiation of sin. The sinner who trusts in Christ's shed blood knows that his old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Verse 6, chapter 6. And considers himself dead with Christ. Verse 8. If a man does not thus identify himself with Christ's purpose to destroy sin, and if, instead of grief and hatred of sin, 
he cherishes the notion that he may continue in sin, that grace may abound. The conclusion is inevitable, that this man knows nothing of Christ and has not been justified. To speak plainly, it is psychologically impossible to trust Christ's redeeming blood and want to continue in sin. Sanctification is not merely the purpose of justification, as if the purpose might fail, but rather sanctification is the inevitable result. There is a progression of thought in chapter 6. The first 14 verses consider the question, Shall we sin in order that grace may abound? This envisages a wicked calculation of habitual sinning. Verse 15 asks a different question. Shall we sin because we are under grace? This envisages not the wicked calculation of habitual sin, but the lazy indifference of an occasional sin. Verse 1 asks, Shall we sin in order that? Verse 15 asks, Shall we sin because? Lazy indifference may not be so heinous as wicked calculation, but it is equally excluded. With the illustration from slavery that Christ himself used, Paul constructs an easily understood syllogism. No man can serve two masters. We are no longer servants of sin, but slaves of God. Therefore, it is God whom we should obey. Point 2. Law and Grace. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. In some ways, this chapter is perhaps even more difficult than chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Yet the Protestant reformers were well agreed as to its meaning. The difficulty is to determine whether Paul is speaking of a regenerate or an unregenerate person. Most of the expressions in verses 7 through 13 can easily be taken as referring to the unregenerate, especially since the verbs are in the past tense. But can verses 14 through 25 in the present tense refer to the unregenerate? Or is Paul describing the normal experience of a Christian? To answer this question, one should observe the position of chapter 7 as a whole. The plan of the epistle makes sanctification the topic of chapters 6 to 8. To expect anything but an incidental reference to the unregenerate state would be to break the continuity of the argument. Then, too, the wider context of all of Paul's epistles, and indeed the whole Bible, teaches that the Christian experiences a conflict with sin, whereas the unregenerate man is at ease in sin. Perhaps the unregenerate may have some twinges of conscience. Chapter 1, verse 32. Chapter 2, verse 15. But since there is no spiritual life, no new strength, the conflict is extremely superficial. Compare Psalm 73, verses 4 through 12. Psalm 119, verse 70. Matthew, chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18. Now the person spoken of in this chapter is inwardly inclined to good. Nearly every one of the last 12 verses emphasizes this in sharp contrast 
to the four references just listed. Here the person hates the evil he does. He wants to do good. He delights in the law of God after the inward man. And he thanks God for deliverance through Jesus Christ. These things are not true of the unregenerate. The experience described, therefore, is the normal experience of a devout Christian. The more sincere he is, and the more faithfully he tries to please God, the more conscious is he of the struggle. Thus, the very occurrence of the struggle is evidence of his regeneration. Compare Psalm 38, 4, Psalm 40, verse 12, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Matthew 26, verse 41, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. The present chapter, therefore, enforces the teaching of the previous chapter, chapter 6, verses 12, 13, and 16, that sanctification is not, like justification, an instantaneous act. Sanctification is the life process of growing in holiness, and this requires effort. Galatians 5, verse 17. James chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Verse 24, therefore, is not to be understood as a doomed man's cry of despair, but as the introduction to the thanksgiving evoked by the answer to the question. These general remarks do not solve all the incidental difficulties of particular verses. There are still a number in the first half of the chapter, but the main idea is not left in doubt. The law of God is good. It is spiritual. It should be an object of delight. Nevertheless, as the law could not justify the sinner, neither can it of itself sanctify the Christian. The law may indeed show what God requires, but it cannot give the life, inclination, or strength to do good. Grace is needed. But is this grace sufficient? The next chapter answers this question. 3. Assurance of Salvation Chapter 8, verses 1-39 through 39. This section of three chapters, from chapter 6 through the end of chapter 8, teaches, as we have seen, that justification by faith, far from encouraging sin, produces sanctification. The present chapter, the last of the three, considers assurance of salvation. This assurance is a stage in the process of sanctification. The break between the chapters, which, of course, is not of Paul's doing, is an unfortunate medieval blunder, for it obscures the fact that 8.1 is the conclusion of the thought in 7.25. Because God has delivered me from this death of sin— Because he has given me the strength to struggle, therefore there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. This assurance is supported in seven short paragraphs. 1. We are freed from the law. Chapter 8, verses 1-4 through The law could not justify the sinner. It can only condemn him. But Christ did what the law could not do, and therefore... Its condemnation does not reach the believer. 2. Salvation is actually begun in regeneration, justification, 
and sanctification. Chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. The Spirit of God dwells in the believer. Therefore, instead of being carnally minded and at enmity with God, the believer is interested in the things of the Spirit. The work of the indwelling Spirit extends even to the resurrection of the mortal body. 3. We are children and heirs of God. Chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. The indwelling Spirit makes us children and enables us to address God as Father. When we think of God as Father, the Holy Spirit is witnessing with, not to, our spirit, that we are God's children. And if children, then we must be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 4. Affliction does not refute this. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. Christ was the Son of God, and He suffered. If we suffer with Him, it confirms rather than refutes our sonship. These sufferings are not restricted to what people ordinarily call persecution. They include all our earthly limitations and weaknesses, all our trials and burdens, and our subjection to physical death. In these sufferings we may groan and not know what to pray for. But the same indwelling Spirit maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God. 5. We have been predestined to eternal life. Chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Reasons for assurance have been building up toward a climax. They converge on the eternal purpose of God. The transition from the previous paragraph is the phrase, who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan or purpose for history. This plan includes not only the grand scheme of things, but also every detail, for God works all things together. According to his divine purpose, God has called or chosen them who now love him. For those persons whom he foreknew or chose, he also predestined to live a Christ-like life. And those whom he thus predestinated, he called, since they were effectually called, he justified them. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. There is in this progression no point at which an individual can drop out. Every one of each preceding class is included in each succeeding class, all the predestinated are justified, all the justified are glorified. Since this process from beginning to end is controlled by God and does not depend on our working all things, the doctrine of predestination is a most important ground of assurance of salvation. 6. God is for us. Chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. He was so interested in our salvation that he did not spare his own son. It cannot be supposed that God would give his son and hold back the lesser gifts of sanctification and glorification. God is in control. It is he who justified us. And that settles the matter. 7. God's love is immutable. Chapter 8, verses 35-39. through 39. 
This final paragraph adds no further grounds of assurance, but rather summarizes them and enforces their application. A series of factors are mentioned. Famine, peril, sword, angels, powers, things to come, that sometimes becloud a Christian's assurance. But none of them is omnipotent, and God is. He has chosen to love us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hello, this is Urban Puritano. I wanted to take a moment to speak with you about Pilgrim Digital. Pilgrim Digital helps small businesses, solopreneurs, startups, nonprofits, churches, parachurch organizations, and even individuals design the visuals that they need to stand out. Take Urban Puritano. It started off as a podcast in the pandemic era, and it has blossomed into a podcast, a website, a blog, a hub, basically for Urban Puritano, yours truly. Web design, graphic design, dynamic integration, even e-commerce, search engine optimization, social media consulting, the possibilities are endless. The bottom line is you shouldn't delay. Contact pilgrimdigital.co. Don't delay. Remember, Pilgrim Digital helps you stop dreaming and start creating. Roman numeral seven. Reply to second objection. It annuls God's promises. Chapter 9 through chapter 11, verse 36. 1. God's sovereign choice. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 33. Paul naturally yearned for the salvation of his own race, and he saw that rejection of Christ by the Jews and the justification of the Gentiles by faith produced the illusion that the word of God was of no effect. Had not the promises been given to the Israelites? No, they had not. At least the promises were not given to the physical descendants of Abraham as such. Ishmael was excluded in favor of Isaac. Esau was also excluded in favor of Jacob. These exclusions are inherent in the promise itself. That is, the choice is God's. Note well that the choice was made before the children had been born, and before either of them had done any good or evil. This was to show that the determining factor is God's purpose. Election does not depend on our works, but on Him that calleth. Was God then unjust to choose Jacob and not Esau, before they were born and apart from their works? Not at all. In the first place, it is not a question of justice, as if Jacob and Esau had some claim on God, but of mercy and compassion. Furthermore, it was God's prerogative also to harden Pharaoh's heart for the purpose of displaying his power in him. Is then God unjust in punishing the wicked, seeing that no one can possibly resist God's will? Not at all. No one has any right to find fault with God. God is like a potter. Out of the very same lump of clay, he makes one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. It is ridiculous to suppose 
that the clay can dictate to the potter. God, therefore, fitted out certain vessels for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared unto glory. And these vessels of mercy include some Gentiles and exclude some Jews. The distinguishing factor between the two groups is faith in Christ. Some Gentiles have faith, but some Jews, in fact the majority, trusting in their own works, find Christ to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 2. Jewish Zeal and Disobedience Chapter 10, verses 1-21 through 21. Nevertheless, Paul naturally desires the salvation of the Jews. Unfortunately, they are ignorant of the Incarnation and the Resurrection, though Moses prophesied of the Messiah, and their zeal is centered in multitudinous works. The righteousness of faith, on the other hand, comes more easily, simply, by the acceptance of the gospel. Now, the gospel briefly is this. If thou shalt confess that Jesus is the Lord, Adonai, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, and sincerely believe in his resurrection from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And this applies to Jew and Gentile alike. But faith or belief in this gospel depends on hearing it. And this presupposes preaching. And this requires the dispatch of missionaries and evangelists to all nations. Now the Jews have indeed heard, but they did not believe our report. Therefore, God is provoking and angering them by choosing the Gentiles. 3. The Future of Israel Chapter 11, verses 1-36 through 36. Hath God then cast away his people forever? Not at all. First, his people, in the sense of those individuals whom he foreknew, God has not cast away. This does not mean all the Jews. For as it was in the time of Elijah, so now the elect are a remnant. Election is of grace, not of works, so that while the remnant obtained grace, the rest were blinded. God gave them the spirit of slumber and caused them to stumble in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Of course, no one would suppose that God would cast away the remnant elected by grace. But there is also another sense in which God will not cast off his people. The Jews as a race still figure in God's plan, and they will have a glorious future. For if the impoverishment of the Jews in the first century enriched the Gentiles, the return of the Jews in the future will produce much greater blessings. It will be like life from the dead. The history of the church can be illustrated by an olive tree. Some of its original and natural branches were broken off so that branches from a wild olive tree could be grafted in. This, of course, is no compliment or ground of boasting for the Gentiles. And if God did not spare the natural branches because of their unbelief, the Gentiles should take heed lest God spare not them also. Furthermore, if God has grafted in wild branches, is it not all the more certain that he will graft back the natural branches at some future date? The blindness of the Jews is to continue until 
the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. This fullness may indicate a time when the great majority of Gentiles then living shall have been converted. Virtually the whole world will be Christian. Such an interpretation makes a proper contrast with all Israel in the next verse. Or, the fullness of the Gentiles might possibly refer to a time when all the Gentiles whom God has chosen for salvation, even though not a majority, have been saved, and God will save no more of them. At any rate, when this fullness comes, then the great majority of the Jews shall be saved also. This ultimate conversion of the Jews was prophesied in the Old Testament. O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen. Chapter 11, verse 33 and 36. Roman numeral 8. Practical Exhortations. Chapters 12 through 16, all the way to verse 27. 1. Service in the Church. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. With the main exposition of doctrine completed, Paul here turns to a series of directions for everyday living. There are some coherent paragraphs in these five chapters but there are many passages which are merely lists of successive items. First comes a general exhortation to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Such service is intelligent worship. Then Paul passes on to the idea that each person has a particular function in the church. There are many members of the one body, and God has given them different measures of faith. Some are called to prophesy. Others are called to minister, to teach, to exhort, or to rule. Each should perform his office with simplicity, diligence, and cheerfulness, remembering that they are all members of the one body. The virtues which are to be exemplified in this service, some of which indeed apply beyond the strict confines of the church organization, are love, zeal, hope, patience, and hospitality. Humility should replace conceit. Peace should be sought rather than vengeance. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. 2. Political Duties Chapter 13, 1-14 Government is not merely a human invention. It is ordained of God for the good of the governed. And therefore, a Christian is obliged to obey the laws, not only from the fear of civil penalties, but chiefly for conscience towards God. The employment of the sword and the collection of taxes are briefly the two chief functions of the state. By the term sword, Paul means the penalties of disobedience, obviously including capital punishment, in war as well. From this passage, James I of England and other absolute monarchs have argued for the divine right of kings, and some theologians have concurred that subjects must invariably submit. 
John Calvin and John Knox, on the contrary, pointed out that rulers also have obligations, and when they fail to discharge their obligations, they may be disobeyed and even replaced. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The midwives of Egypt also, Exodus 1, verse 17, and Moses' parents, Exodus 2, verse 3, disobeyed Pharaoh. If, then, government is ordained of God, it would seem reasonable that it has no authority contrary to God's commands. But in all ordinary cases, and this is most of the time, a Christian should obey the law. He should, of course, obey the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which specify the contents of love. The light of the gospel has dawned. Heaven is nearer than it was. So therefore, let us put on the armor of light. 3. Personal Responsibility Chapter 14, verses 1-23 through 23. Some people are weak in the faith. Instead of limiting their scruples to the precepts of God's word, they are conscientiously opposed to eating pork and are strict in the observance of feasts and fast days. Such persons should be received into the church membership and should not be despised, but they are not to be received for the purpose of disputing matters in doubt. That is, the weak and superstitious Christian who eateth not is not to set the standard for Christian conduct. It is not their prerogative, but God's, to judge the actions of the more mature Christian. Both groups are trying to serve the Lord, and all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each individual, therefore, must personally assume his responsibilities as he sees them. Although it is the weaker group that is apt to be censorious and cause friction, it devolves chiefly upon those who are stronger in the faith to diminish the friction by a policy of accommodation. Eating pork and drinking wine are not sins. They are matters of indifference. But precisely because they are indifferent, they do not constitute the kingdom of God. The kingdom consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Therefore, if any form of indifferent conduct is likely to cause a weaker Christian to violate his conscience, the stronger Christian, though he may allow himself these things on other occasions, is obliged to forego them in such circumstances. For violation of conscience, the doing of what one believes is wrong, is a sin that God condemns. No one should lead a weaker Christian into this sin. 4. Paul's Missionary Ambitions Chapter 15, verses 1-33 through 33. The opening verses of this chapter confirm and enforce the duties just enjoined, partly by an appeal to the example of Christ. We should try to please our neighbor when it is to his good, for Christ pleased not himself. Christ also received us, and therefore we too should receive the weak in faith. The work of Christ brings to Paul's mind the calling of the Gentiles and this introduces Paul's missionary ambitions. He has been particularly anxious to preach the gospel in places where Christ has not been named. This aim of starting new churches in unevangelized territory is the reason why Paul has not been able to visit Rome. Fortunately, 
At present, his work in Greece is about finished, and he can think of taking the gospel to Spain. This will give him the oft-desired opportunity of visiting the imperial city. First, however, he must deliver to the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem the relief money that the Greeks have so generously contributed. Then he points to the sale for Spain. He asks the Roman Christians to pray for his safety during his stay in Jerusalem, for there is always the danger that the Pharisees might arrest him and have him executed. 5. Personal Greetings Chapter 16, verses 1-27 through 27. In his travels, Paul had met multitudes of people. A number of his converts, for one reason or another, had gone to Rome. Therefore, Paul sends greetings to more than two dozen saints by name. Phoebe, who apparently is to carry the letter, he commends to the Romans for her faithful service. Priscilla and Aquila, who have hazarded their lives for Paul, now put their house in Rome at the disposal of the Roman church for one of its particular congregations, and so on. In conclusion, Paul warns the Romans to avoid those who deviate from the doctrine that has been taught. They may be fair of speech, but they serve not the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, after including some salutations from his associates, Paul ends the epistle with a benediction and a doxology. That doxology, dear listener, ends as follows. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul explains in the book of Romans was commenced and inaugurated in the Middle East. And when the risen and reigning Lord Jesus took hold of Saul on the road to Damascus, he set the Apostle Paul on a new trajectory, both spiritually and geographically. The Apostle Paul looked to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in westward nations, not only towards the heart of the Roman Empire, but to the edge of the known world. But look at so-called Western Christendom now. It is often the source of great embarrassment and shame, not because of weakness of influence, but because of an abandonment of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The only God-pleasing option is the unadulterated preaching of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ for all nations, whether north or south, or east and west. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 